Good morning. As accountants go, we're not that late. Uh, we do have a bit of time, so we can. My name is Michael Bromwich. I'm one of the organisers. Uh, Alberman is over there, another organiser, and um, Becky Baker's somewhere around, who's in charge. And there's lots of people with red shirts on who know all about everything, hopefully. So any problems? Uh, the um, I'm not sure we tell you these things. The the bathrooms are either downstairs or up on each floor, alternatively male and female. I can't think of anything else administratively to do other than to welcome you all. A very fine turnout, especially at the beginning of the day. Um, so really then, uh, all I want to do is say how pleased I am to see everybody here. This is the 32nd meeting we've had. So you can work out how old I am if you wish. Um, and there are one or two, well I think there are quite a number of new faces and part of the uh, idea here is that you network with other people. What that means is uh, please do not wait to be introduced to other people. If you see someone who looks interesting to talk about management accounting, please do go and talk to them. Okay, so it's really my, my, my job is to introduce our first speaker, who is John Cullen from the University of Sheffield. You have enormous biographies of all the speakers. I'm not going to re reiterate those. You're welcome to read them. And um, we welcome John. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Michael. Now, good morning, uh, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, like to just welcome. Sorry, just introduce my fellow. They're not presenting, I'm doing the presenting, but they're here for the questions, basically, as normally happens on these occasions when, when the questions become too difficult. Um, I've got Sue Richardson, uh, who's worked with me for a, for a number of years. I'm sure Michael doesn't remember, but uh, many years ago we did a case study on pathology in the NHS, and we actually had a, a superhero called uh, Chris or was the, uh, a public entrepreneur, so we, we, we used to have a bit of banter with, uh, with Michael about that. And, and Sue's actually been working with me on this particular project that we've carried out in the Rotherham NHS, uh, NHS, Rotherham NHS area. Then also there's Peter Rogers. Peter joined the university, university fairly recently. Um, Peter's an ESRC fellow. He, he actually joined as, as part of the the, the kind of the idea of introducing people from different disciplines into accounting. So Peter comes from a different discipline area completely in many ways. He's actually joined the University of Sheffield under, under an ESRC fellowship scheme and he, he's really joined us in many ways to develop the paper with particular focus around the notion of practice theory. So, so Peter's here as well. If I can just um, basically talk about 
you know, the, 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 this, this paper or this presentation, in many ways we, we often feel that accounting, or many people suggest when you talk about accounting, that accounting can act as a, an inhibitor of innovation within organisations. That's sometimes a perception that people have. And we actually, we got some money from the White Rose Health Initiative to actually undertake a project around can, can accounting actually help facilitate or stimulate innovation in the NHS. And when we started, we were actually going to do something about a techni technological innovation. And we actually got uh, teamed up with a company which, which developed uh, innovative solutions around ulcers. Uh, and it was going to be a really dynamic uh, clinical innovation. Unfortunately, the organization went bust. Uh, so that, um, that actual, uh, that project kind of disappeared. So we then got thinking and, and thought about, well, what can we do now? Because we, we, we've kind of got the money, we need to do something in this area. And it came, you know, we, we thought about it, and in many senses, a lot of the innovations within the NHS are not really technologically driven, but they're actually about process changes, about different ways of doing things. And so in that sense, we, we actually decided to attack it in a completely different way. So we, we contacted um, the Chief Finance Officer at Rotherham NHS Trust, um, Matthew Lowry, who we actually knew from previously working in the Sheffield, one of the Sheffield PCTs. And we had a chat with him about uh, what we wanted to do, and he was really quite you know, welcoming. And, and, and then we talked to the PCT in Rotherham as well. And then we talked to NHS Supply Chain and we talked to Collaborative Hub within the region. So it basically became a project looking at the supply chain within Rotherham NHS. And I think it's interesting to look at Rotherham NHS because if people can remember the program, Can Jerry Robinson Fix the NHS? people can recollect that program. It was actually focused on Rotherham Foundation Trust Hospital. So that, that program gave a kind of um, an interesting view of the NHS. It was focused on Rotherham, but actually the issues that were raised were very much about the N NHS in total. So it wasn't just about Rotherham. What I want to do initially is just give you some context about Rotherham uh, in terms of what's happening there in, in, in the NHS Trust. And then we'll go on to just pick up on some academic literature fairly briefly, then go into the case study itself, and then some reflections. And then some reflections around the new, you know, the equity and excellence liberating the NHS and what maybe what some of the things we've talked about, what are the implications coming out of that particular new paper. If we look at Rotherham NHS Foundation Trust, the latest figures for it, the public data figures, so this wasn't part of our research, but basically Rotherham NHS Trust is, is in the top 15% of foundation trusts. <clears throat> Only 13 hospital trusts have actually received double, e double excellence in the, the Care Quality Commission figures for quality and financial management for the second year in a row. So it's actually doing quite well as a, as a hospital. It had 2.9 million surplus in 2009-10, so financially it's very very, uh, very strong. And interestingly, it won the Health Investor Magazine Foundation Trust of the Year 2009. So Rotherham NHS Trust Hospital has got a lot to be proud of. So that's the current position. What was the position when we actually got there in terms of the, the external context? At the time we did this work, which was in uh, late 2008, 
going to 2009. This was the time of the, the kind of Darcy report, the next stage review. Um, so that was very influential. Payment by results was very influential in terms of what was happening. The TV documentary had just been on, so people had a, a vision of what Rotherham was about. And it was also about world-class commissioning. The NHS was talking specifically about world-class commissioning. So that, that was the external contact. Uh, sorry, the external context. And what we wanted to do was to, to look at, I say, the supply chain within the, the kind of Rotherham NHS area. So this paper is really concentrating or focusing on some, some, some supply chain issues within that area. What about the catalyst for change? Well, obviously, all of these things were catalysts for change. Foundation Trust, the NHS, were facing a number of issues. And therefore, the question here was, how do we address those issues? What do we do about it? How do we take this Foundation Trust and this NHS region forward? Interestingly, the Chief Executive, Brian James, at the NHS, uh, Rotherham NHS Foundation Trust, got a bit of stick during the film. It was suggested he didn't walk around enough, he wasn't that communicative with, with many of the people within the organisation. He actually was very influential in terms of the, these change, these change processes. Ma uh, Matthew Lowry, the Chief Financial Officer and, uh, and Assistant, uh, assistant um, Chief Executive was also very influential and they brought a lot of people from outside of the NHS into their kind of board. They also had a, a, a suggestion scheme which was really influential within the NHS Hospital Trust as well called RISE. So what were the strategies for achieving objectives? Basically, and I'll go on to these, they actually made accountability changes within the NHS Trust and it was all about creating something called a foundation unit within the foundation trust and this has been very influential within Rotherham, uh, the foundation trust. They looked at things like um, the service range they were offering and they also looked at strategic alliances and an important part of the presentation today is the way in which they actually worked with other parts of the supply chain in Rotherham in the Rotherham area to make changes to, to, to provide better service. And in some senses what we're looking at here, and again these come from words of, of, of uh, people within the organisation, what we're looking at here basically is a service supply chain with the objective in many ways of, of providing excellent, and in their terms as well, the, these are not our words, these are their words, excellent customer service. I say in terms of performance, at the time that we actually did this, so we're working on this project, again the, the trust had got a surplus of 3.7 million, it beat national targets in 30 out of 35 services, um, it increased market share, and again this was the language that was being used outside the locality, um, and it actually got a very good working relationship with the, the full health community. So this was a, 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 um, an organisation that seemed to be going places in the context that it was operating in. And again, just to find before I go on to just the, a, a brief outline of the academic context, again, the words of the Chief Finance Officer, what he suggested at the time we did the, the work with them, he said that Rotherham intends to differentiate from its competitors, and again it was using that language, through technical de technological developments and quality of service. And we'll see as time goes on that they've actually achieved many technological improvements and excellent quality of service. 
Okay, now I'll just cover some brief academic, do a brief academic overview uh, before getting into the case study itself. One of the things that I think it's really good, the audience here today is a mix of practitioners and academics and I'm conscious of that in terms of giving the presentation because there's been much literature around recently which, which talks about the need for management accounting research to be actually relevant to practice. Van Helden and Northcott talk about theoretical opportunities arising out of practice-based research. Broadbent and Guthrie talk about um, big issues within public service delivery, again, that we need to address. Goddard 2010 actually suggested that in terms of looking at public sector accounting research, only 80% of the, the papers that, were, that had been kind of written recently or within a certain period were concerned with the accounting practice community. And, and, and Malmi and, 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 uh, Malmi and Granland actually suggested that in many ways, as, as the, the, the quote there at the bottom, accounting is an academic discipline that should concern itself with, with issues that are concerned to practitioners. This particular work is very much linked to following that, that process. It's very much about issues that are relevant to practitioners and ways in which that particular community has developed new ideas and new innovations. There's also been quite a bit of literature looking at the role of management accounting in organisational change. And these are just some examples. Uh, the literature is vast and uh, there's, you know, it would take all day to go through it. So I'm just kind of introducing some, some aspects. Burns and Scapen used institutional theory to talk about organisational change and resistance to change within, uh, within organisations. Roe et al. 2008 um, again called for management accounting research to actually look at ways in which accountability and performance measurement um, occurred within organisations. And then Chanel and Hughes 2007 picked up on this notion of interdependencies. Because this paper is very much about interdependencies between different parts of the Rotherham NHS supply chain. So those three papers, and I said there's a vast number, actually pick up on, on, on some aspects of change. And the, the quote at the bottom there, how do management accounting practices such as responsibility accounting and performance measurement actually interact with, interact with the organisational process, uh, with organisational process change? And again, what I hope to do within the presentation is to give you some examples of what we found within the Rotherham NHS. Interorganisational accounting, again, there's a growing body of literature in that area, and this just, the, the, these are just a few of the, the, the relevant articles. But what we're doing in this particular presentation is talking about interorganisational activity. We're talking about the NHS Foundation Trust, the NHS Primary Care Trust, uh, NHS Supply Chain. It's not about one particular organisation, it's about a community. And again, we'll pick up on those. So there are a number of articles. The first three, Sheila Tell, Maritz and Etel, Cohen and Cullen, 2006, really pick up on the use of management accounting techniques and ideas to actually manage organisations, uh, manage the relationships between organisations. So you get a whole range of tools being used, don't book accounting, target costing, um, outsourcing issues, make or buy, quality costing. So there's a number of kind of techniques there. And the, the last article there by Curran, Mackey and Miller, 2010, 
suggested that much of the work on interorganisational accounting was actually looking at the private sector and not really picking up on public sector issues. And the public sector is obviously, uh, or public service provision is very important. So what this paper again is doing, or this presentation is doing, is actually picking up on this, this uh, public service provision. And also, Curran, Mackey and Miller also picked up on understanding the idea that we need to understand the processes that are taking place, the everyday, everyday doings, what's happening within these organisations, how are these kind of inter-organisational activities actually being managed. And again, this paper will, will look at some of those issues. So it's important to look at uh, processes and, and uh, processes and practices. This paper is about innovation. So again, what's been around there in terms of innovation? And again, the, 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 there's been a lot around in terms of innovation. Aaron's and Chapman, Maritz and et al. 2009. There's been some positive literature about impact of management accounting in, on innovation, as well as obviously some concerns around what happens with the use of accounting. The key issue there, the key issue there, I think of those last two quotes there, innovation activities are often inter-organisational. Today it's not about innovation within one organisation, it's about innovation across organisational boundaries. So when we're looking at innovation and accounting, we need to think about these cross-organisational activities. And the, the last point which comes from Maritz and et al. 2009, also suggests that innovation has to pass the test of management accounting calculations before people within the, the broader organisation actually uh, think about some of the issues associated with that innovation. So what we're doing today, as I say, is talking about some innovation that's been driven uh, from two different perspectives within the Rotherham NHS Trust, and hopefully we can add to the literature that, that uh, some of the literature that already exists. And finally, in terms of the, the introduction to the, uh, the literature, I want to talk, briefly introduce practice theory. And in some senses, the paper that we're developing is actually looking at the use of practice theory as a kind of theoretical lens to, to explore what's happening within this, this organisational supply chain. So there's some work on practice theory and accounting, Arends and Chapman 2007, Baxter and Tewer 2008, which actually looks at the role of accounting, the practice of accounting, uh, management accounting within organisations. What is it that, what's happening, what's the practice uh, what's happening, how does that influence everyday doings, the, the, the everyday life of organisational members. Uh, this is a term, uh, Peter's a, a, an ex-colleague of, uh, but Jar, Jar Zabkowski and Spee, 2009, Jar Zabkowski has done a lot of work on practice here in the strategy area. And actually one of the things that they, they kind of came up with was... Um, there's little strategy as practice literature which actually picks up on some of the outcomes. So it's the last point there. Practice literature does need to reflect on variations in outcomes. So one of the things we're focusing on, what are the outcomes coming through you know, from these changes within Rotherham NHS? So this particular paper, this particular presentation actually thinks about some of the outcomes. What's happening in this organisation relative to other NHS trusts? So we are picking up on on outcomes as part of this, uh, this kind of practice literature review of, of, of what's happening. 
I think the first two are Anson Chapman, Baxter and Chu are also talk about let's look at accounting in action. And this follows the tradition of Hopwood, Anthony Hopwood's work, etc., around looking at accounting as it actually works within organisations. So that gives you some theoretical kind of background in terms of what, we, what we, we, we're focusing on within this, with this particular presentation. So what about the case study? So the case study, as I've said already, is based on Rotherham NHS supply chain. The question, innovation in the NHS, can accounting stimulate and facilitate organisational change in the NHS? So we're looking at innovation, and what we've got are two examples of innovation. There are other things that we've actually got in the, the report that we did, but specifically for this, this paper and this, this particular presentation, we're focusing on two different innovations. The first one is the foundation unit, and again I'll cover this in more detail, but this was driven by management accounting in many ways. So this was driven by the management accounting traditions around accountability. So this was about stimulating innovation. So the first one, driven by the management accountants, and this in some ways is talking about the stim stimulating innovation within, uh, within the, the Foundation Trust Hospital. And the second one is enteral feeding. And enteral feeding wasn't driven by management accounting. In fact, management accounting had to kind of change in order to facilitate what was happening within the central feeding process. So in some senses here, management accounting is facilitating that innovation. So we've got stimulating in one case example and in, uh, facilitating in another case example. And again, we will look at outcomes as part of you know, what happened as a result of these changes in terms of the, uh, the management accounting engagement, management accounting engagement with, uh, with clinicians. Sorry, the enteral feeding one was driven by a clinician. So it was the clinicians. Okay. I was going to explain that in a minute, but I'll do it now. Enteral feeding is basically where you have to feed somebody through a tube so they can't actually eat naturally. So it's about people, you know, cancer patients, whole range of things. So that, that's basically what it's about. And I'll, I'll explain that uh, a bit later. So, two examples from a different perspective of the, way, whoops, of the way in which accounting actually engages with other people within the, within the organization. So if we look at the foundation unit, Rotherham became a foundation trust hospital in 2005. And it is actually quite unique um, in, in the sense that it created what we call foundation units within the Foundation Trust Hospital. This follows on from the notion of service line, service line departments and what happens within Rotherham and, and the first kind of foundation units were in September 2008. But what happens within Rotherham Foundation Trust is that basically these service line departments can actually become foundation units and I'll explain the, 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 the value of that uh, shortly. What is actually the key, the key issue or the key opportunity in terms of becoming a foundation unit and they had to meet certain criteria to be a foundation unit they had to be benchmark, national benchmark costs this was linked in with the notion of payment by results so they had to, to better 
Um, uh, the kind of benchmarks and also they had to achieve a surplus uh, over a period of time. So to become a foundation unit you needed to meet that criteria. September 2008 ophthalmology and urology became foundation units, the first two foundation units within Rotherham Foundation Trust. And what it actually means is that they actually can retain surpluses because we've got an income and expenditure position here. They get income through payment by results, they get expenditure obviously in terms of the cost associated with it. So they're actually allowed as a foundation unit to keep 80% of their surplus. And this was quite a powerful driver in terms of, you know, in terms of behavior uh, with, the, with the clinicians. To become a foundation unit, the members of staff were balloted, so there was a kind of democratic process. Um, and, and there was some unease in, you know, within certain clinical quarters about becoming a foundation, um, a foundation unit. Some of the clinicians are very uneasy about talking about finance issues and clinical issues together. So there, there's a number of kind of competing views in here, but they, they did actually uh, vote in a sense to, to, to create this, uh, this foundation unit. And the clinical leader, and Sue and myself met the clinical leader, uh, and he was also appeared on the, um, the TV program. Um, we, we met him, and it, it was an amazing kind of experience in a sense. When, when the kind of first time we met him, he came into the room. He'd obviously just been in theatre. He got his gown on, he got a thing around his neck, and he got a laptop computer, and he, he kind of walked in, and he, and, and he just kept talking and talking and talking, didn't he, for, for a long time. He was an amazing guy. And we actually, I actually, um, I said to him, you, you, you seem like an entrepreneur, going back to the entrepreneur thing, you seem like an entrepreneur to me, Mohammed, that's what I said to him. And, and he, he, he didn't kind of like that. He said, uh, no, he said, entrepreneurs are businessmen and women. He says, I'm a clinical leader. So he was very proud of his clinical, you know, there was a clinical leader. But what he was actually doing in many ways was, was quite, you know, when we just talk about some of the things he was introducing and doing, they were very, in the language of a public entrepreneur, very entrepreneurial, but it was actually driven by this clinical, you know, this clinical drive in terms of improving patient, uh, patient, uh, patient experiences. He believed very strongly that uh, additional autonomy would stimulate innovation. He was quite clear that the ability to retain surpluses within the foundation unit would be a driver to introduce innovation within the NHS. And, and he actually introduced numerous innovations, which we'll talk about in a minute. The clinical work leader worked quite closely with the divisional accountant. We actually run a um, we, we got an executive MBA program at Sheffield and, and I actually got the divisional accountant to come and do a presentation uh, to, the, to the executive MBA students and they were actually quite surprised at the relationship between her, um, uh, the, the, the divisional accountant and the, the clinical leader of that, uh, of that foundation unit. The divisional accountant was very heavily engaged with what was happening. The clinical director um, did did really engage with that with that divisional accountant. He 
He actually felt that the divisional accountant was quite pivotal. This change in accountability structure was quite pivotal and the role of the divisional accountant was quite pivotal in terms of making this work. Um, and and um, he kind of um, really, really was quite excited uh, about this. And, and that's genuine, genuinely was very excited when we were talking to him about the opportunities that he created. Financial dashboard, and there's a slight, uh, we're going to the financial dashboard, and what you can do is just see the headings and not the figures. We didn't include the figures in the, the copy of the slides. I can change the color of this a bit uh, to, to create uh, further information about the figures, but the figures were made up, uh, basically, because it was a public document. It was a document that we gave out in the report. But the financial dashboard, the key thing to look at there are the headings, and equally to look at the mix of information, some graphics, some figures. It also picks up on issues around internal trading, theatres, internal trading. So within this divisional structure, the theatres were a kind of division, so there was an internal trading between the, the uh, clinical areas and the theatres. And that did cause, cause quite a few issues. So it's fair to say that there were some tensions around in terms of theatre use, etc. So whilst I'm presenting a very positive picture of life, you know, there were some, some kind of tensions around in terms of some of the accountability structures that were introduced. You'll see quite clearly you've got income and expenditure, so we're looking at the income from PBR, we're looking at the expenditure, and we're looking at variances. And this document, this document was quite important for, for that particular clinical unit and was, a, was a, an important development within uh, within Rotherham NHS Trust and equally it was very important in terms of financial uh, management within the trust because again it, it received uh, double excellent awards in terms, sorry, double excellent marks in terms of its financial management. So this was a, a key document that was used within the uh, within the organisation. What about examples of innovation because this is what we're here to talk about really and also what I want to say is it was innovation across organisational boundaries. Mohammed, who was the, uh, was the clinical lead, was driven by the notion of taking his services out to the community. He developed a couple of quite major innovations uh, in terms of a retinal scanner, which uh, Rotherham took the lead on, and, and this was a foundation trust and primary care trust innovation, so it was about working together. This was to improve um, medical tests around, around the eyes, um, and it actually was, would create a situation where the old process was that people had drops. It, when you got the drops in, it took 45 minutes. Uh, you then can't drive for four to six hours, etc., etc. Whereas the retinal scanner was 0.5 of a second, it took apparently. Um, and you'd got an electronic record of the patient's eye situation. And what he actually did was introduce community-based ophthalmology services and theatreless uh, surgery to the UK in terms of the community. Because the other innovation that he also introduced was something around called the Surgicube, which was about creating theatre opportunities outside of the, of the hospital itself. And this was something that started off in the Netherlands. So basically, the innovation coming out of this ability to retain surplus 
meant that in terms of innovation that, that Rotherham was actually at the leading edge of healthcare in, in, an, in, in this kind of ophthalmology area. And there's also a lot of kind of joint ventures at the moment with kind of private sector type initiatives within, within the uh, Rotherham Hospital Trust. So that's the accountability one and that's where the accountants actually drove that process and it was through their systems that we actually got innovation. The next one is about enteral feeding. And enteral feeding, as I say, is where basically people come out of hospital, cannot feed normally, and therefore have to be fed through uh, different means. This is, is unique in, in Rotherham. Again, we, we kind of got this from the people involved, but equally it's, um, we understand that it is kind of unique. Basically, nutrition and dietetics at the Rotherham Foundation Trust Hospital actually manage the whole process now for NHS Rotherham, which is the community as well as the, um, as well as the Trust Hospital. So what happened is that basically patients are in hospital, they then come out of the hospital, the dietitians in hospital work out what the... the, the uh, procedures, what, what feeding regimes they need, they go out into the community. Previously, whilst the Foundation Trust Hospital dealt with them in the hospital, the Primary Care Trust dealt with them in the, in the uh, community, and there wasn't that much liaison, although in reality, obviously, the community had to deal, had to kind of go with the regime that the Foundation Trust Hospital um, put forward. But it was very, the feeling was it was very inefficient. The head of clinical, uh, the head of nutrition and dietetics, who we refer to as Mary in, in, in the kind of paper, uh, going back a few years, was determined to change this. So we're on to catalyst for change. She wanted to change this. She thought it was inefficient. It wasn't servicing, serving the, the patients very well. And so she asked for some more resource to do this. I was immediately told that there was no more resource available and that basically to go away and do something about it. If you want this kind of thing, you need to do something about it. So she actually went away and did something about it. And I'll come on to the, the process that she, uh, that she uh, introduced. In doing this, what she had to do was basically get rid of the current accounting processes that happened in enteral feeding. The current accounting processes that measured enteral feeding were actually dysfunctional in terms of producing good experience for the patients. And again, the quote at the, the, the end there is from, uh, from Mary. If you have a vision and you hit a wall, then you get around it. She did hit a wall, she had a vision, and she did get around it. And she's now providing quite a unique service. What was this... Um, so just going on, so what happened basically was that Mary actually now manages the budget for both the Rotherham Foundation Trust and the Rotherham Primary Care Trust. So she actually manages the budget for both of those organisations. Remember these are two organisations. She now manages the budget for, for, for those two organisations. And we've got a, again a diagram of the on the next one and I'll just um, I'll just kind of end the show for a minute and I'm just going to change the so that you can see the arrows 
This was the process that, see, they changed the process. See, actually, they, they kind of did this, but interestingly, in the, in the dialogue that we had with Mary, Sue was, Sue was particularly engaged in that dialogue, and Sue actually produced this map of the process as a result of the dialogue. And whilst they changed the processes, uh, they'd never actually drawn this diagram, had they, Sue? So this, this was a diagram that you actually put together. And they kind of liked that in some sense, because it helped them to understand what was going on. But what was happening is, to, to put it simply, as a result of doing this, the Foundation Trust in some senses, they, they, they jointly now procure the enteral feeding, uh, enteral feeding requirements. And in some senses, the Foundation Trust actually loses out partly, and the Primary Care Trust gains as part of financially. And what, so what they did is they got rid of, say, the, the, the traditional boundary as such, and then they do the processes and the, the, uh, the clinical lead deals with, or the, deals with the invoices across the whole supply chain. And then they, they work out the, the accounting, you know, what goes where after that kind of process. So there, there's some kind of financial compensation across the organisational boundaries that they actually work out. And this, this kind of diagram... Um, is really quite innovative in terms of the way that they dealt with it because nobody else is doing that again in terms of looking at cross-organizational boundaries but accounting traditionally was an inhibitor of this kind of activity it became something which facilitated the activity because they were allowed to do allowed to do the changes I'll just go back to the background stairs and go back to the original color What were the outcomes? Basically the outcomes were at a time when other uh, budgets for enteral feeding were across the, the different trusts were increasing by about 24%. Rotherham achieved across the supply chain a 10% reduction and that is still happening. And also the patient satisfaction was much better. Mary actually said, you know, that again in, in, in her words, this was 110% successful. It was something that really worked. It was very hard work, but it worked. And without the kind of um, change in accounting, this wouldn't have been facilitated at all. It wouldn't have worked because it wouldn't have been allowed. So it was a clinically driven change which actually helped um, change what was happening. And just the final thing on the, on the kind of enteral feeding, this again is, is coming from, from Mary. She said, what, what we did, we, we sat down with a blank sheet of paper and, and asked, how would we like it to be and how do we get there? Forget all the accounting stuff we've got at the moment. We just want to look at the process. We just want to understand what we need to do. Keep it simple and get to the patients. And again, it's the simplest things that make the difference. There are pockets of innovation, and we do need innovation to jolt inertia. So she was very keen on this notion of changing things, but the current accounting practices would have stopped that kind of process happening in terms of behavioural issues around where the money goes and who gets what. Okay, finally, in terms of um, some reflections... 
We feel that this is a kind of rich empirical study of, way, of the way in which accounting is embedded in organizational change and processes of innovation in the NHS. There was evidence of accounting and new accountability structures being used to facilitate, and this is the important thing, facilitate and stimulate innovative activity in the health community. In terms of a, a kind of academic paper, we, we're actually developing this notion of practice theory to help us to analyze what people are actually doing in that research context. And we feel in many ways that research has been relevant to practice because what we're doing is sharing notions of innovative practice within the particular health supply chain that we looked at. Picked up on that last bullet point, partnering within the health community actually created opportunities for flexibility and innovation. There were issues, you know, there were some tensions uh, and again, they're, they're, they're developed within, within, a, within a paper. Service line reports developed a, an internal trading exercise, and again, the theatre, you notice the internal trading on theatre, and that caused some tensions. We need to remember, and this was quite powerful when we looked at Rotherham, and we met a number of people, so we, we, we met people at uh, you know, different levels, different clinical areas within the organization. It's basically, in their words as well, it's people who innovate. At the end of the day, it's people who innovate. But organizational structures and systems can actually prevent or facilitate such innovation. And the other critical thing at the moment, I think, is around what's happening within the public service provision. Public service provision at the moment with, with you know, with not so much, well, partly with legislation. This notion of partnering is becoming critically important. Partnering across agencies. We're actually doing a development program in the Sheffield City region where we've got delegates from the, uh, from the council, from the NHS, from the fire service, from the police service, all working together on a program. And interestingly, one of the partners, one of the delegates from, I, I, I did some work around supply chains and talked about a number of issues. One of the delegates said, I'd never thought about supply chains in a public service context. I always thought about supply chains as kind of Eddie Stobart, who was about logistics and distribution. But in reality, much of the work that's currently going on about public service provision, social enterprise, cross-agency working, is very much talking about supply chains. It's about agencies working together. And there's a really nice article which I've not included uh, on the, uh, in, in this presentation by Calendar 2011, which talks specifically about public service, um, public service supply chains. And that's the way, in many respects, that, that things will happen in the future. Finally, what about the future? People. Uh, who are here from the, from the UK will, will probably be familiar with the debate that's currently happening uh, coming out of Equity and Excellence liberating the NHS 2010. A lot of controversy around this particular uh, document. In many senses, much of the stuff that's in there, so it talks about social enterprise, again, different forms of public service. It talks about partnering. It's very big on partnering. So some of the stuff that we talked about much of the stuff that we talked about in terms of what's currently happening at Rotherham NHS 
community, health community, actually fits in partly with what's suggested in, the, in this liberating the NHS. The more controversial bit about it, I think, or one of the controversial bits about it, is the, the provision of or the introduction of GP consortia rather than the primary care trust. And the argument is that that will save, I think it's 45% of costs within the kind of managerial costs within the NHS. So one of the questions really in terms of the work that we did was to what extent will GP consortia and foundation trust hospitals actually work together in terms of partnering relationships to gain some of the benefits that we actually found in, in the Rotherham Health community between the PCT and the, um, and the, the foundation trust. Um, but I say it's very controversial. There's lots of people arguing against it and how it actually eventually happens, I'm not 100% certain because things keep getting delayed. Um, so there's no real... Uh, there's, there's no real outcome from that at the moment. Okay, I think that's about time in terms of uh, the programme, so just open for questions. I think Thank you very much indeed, John. Um, you've helped me no end, actually. Um, when we devise these things, uh, Alan is very good, Alan is very good at producing titles. They look good, I had no idea what it meant. Uh, what it means, I think John's made it very clear what it means. I think it means that current accounting isn't necessarily very fit for purpose in many cases, and that things need to be changed. And I think John's shown that that's the case in the National Health Service. So you've helped me know it. Thank you. Uh, we have only run perhaps a couple of minutes on questions, so questions please. Could you say who you are, by the way? I'm uh, George Cross, National Consultant, living in Paris, but a graduate of LSE 1954-57, Accounting Finance, one of the first. Sorry, who is? Rose. No, Rose. Rise. I'm not quite. I, I talked about um, a rise, which was a suggestion scheme. Is that the one? Okay, no, Rose. Rise is a scheme. Mary is the uh, Mary is the clinical lead. Matthew is the finance, and Rise was actually a, a, a suggestion scheme within the, within the hospital. Which has worked very well, actually. Sorry, going back, the foundation unit idea, um, I think Rotherham is fairly unique in terms of the foundation unit. It's not unique, I mean, other people may have equivalents, and obviously, I think uh, uh, Robbie Bellis George is going to talk about service line, service line costing issues. <coughs> but what was unique was the level of surplus retention and the ability to use that surplus retention. Um, in terms of the entral feeding, the kind of working with the community is developing across the NHS. But in terms of entral feeding, I think Rotherham again is quite unique. We did actually, following on from the report that we did, we did actually pass this on to their innovation, the NHS innovation unit and the NHS social enterprise unit. So it has actually gone in to a government and NHS thing for, for uh, dissemination. 
Hi, I'm Gregory Yin. Um, just a simple question. Um, what uh, can the clinical head, Dr. Muhammad, do with the surplus that's retained by the foundation unit? Okay, it can Thank do you. in many ways what he wants to do. Uh, within, obviously, the, uh, the uh, you know, within regulations, etc. But he can actually recruit one of the, he gave us an example of where there, there were a number of consultants came for interviews and he was actually quite excited about a number of them and he got so he actually recruited more than originally anticipated so he had the ability to actually recruit more consultants I forget the figures but across the hospital they recruited a lot more consultants uh, in the last year but he gave, he can basically do anything within you know that, that's good for, for, for the service but he can recruit more consultants <coughs> There's one there and then one at the back Down here, sorry <laughs> Richard McVie from uh, LSE. Um, I wasn't quite clear when you were talking about Mary yeah. and getting around her war, and she ended up uh, running the budget for both the uh, Foundation Trust and the Primary Care Trust. Was that her idea, or was she, I mean, is that what she argued was necessary? And was that a very unusual thing for somebody to get that? And how, what I'm interested in is, who at a higher level said, this is not mad, she should be allowed to do it? Because that would have stopped the whole thing otherwise. Yeah, it would, yeah. So, basically, her idea was that she wanted to produce a better service. <coughs> and this was when she, she, she initially wanted more resource, and they said you can't have it. She then wanted to do something better, so they said, well, design something. This is where she got the blank sheet of paper and said, this is what we need to do. Actually, the traditional accounting systems that are in place would have detracted from that in the sense that it would, behaviorally, it wouldn't have, you know, it wouldn't have been that well seen by the different organizations within the supply chain. It was her idea, or the group of people who worked with her on this, it was then her idea that they do this and that meant changing the accounting system. And, but she did have to get the approval of the chief finance officer, that was kind of Matthew at the Foundation Trust, but also the chief, uh, the chief at the P PCT as well. So she actually got it signed off by the two heads of those two organisations. Uh, but it was de definitively, it came out of that kind of diagno diagnosis of the idea, but it did have to be signed off, and it is, as we understand it, unique in terms of that relationship. Yes, I think so, yeah. I'm going to say we have submitted it to an innovation uh, thing. And, you know, the entral feeding uh, is seen by other trusts uh, to be very good. In terms of how they're going to implement that, I can't comment on that at the moment. Can I, before we have that question, can I ask one question, which is simply, uh, I'm used to seeing in the literature that these innovations work if you have, you have to have a, a champion. Yeah at the top of yes, the organisation. Yeah. Was there a champion here? There is a champion for change in the organisation. And again, I, I didn't go through the whole thing, but Matthew Lowry, who is the chief, well, was the chief finance officer, the deputy chief executive, is now the operations director. He, he, he runs the whole hospital. He was definitively an innovation champion. 
Um, and then I think the thing about Rotherham is that they also have champions, uh, you know, going through the organisation. But he was definitively very much a kind of champion. They've got another. They've actually running a scheme now for the uh, the whole health service around um, reducing the use of electricity in in wards, etc. So they're leading that. So they're they're up for lots of that. It's very innovative type organisation, but there is a champion at the highest level. Thank you, John. Um, David Cooper from the University of Alberta in Canada. Um, interesting uh, set of cases. Uh, and thank you for that. Uh, when I think about uh, accounting, management accounting and innovation, I tend to think back to some of Bob Simon's work at Harvard uh, and his work on levers of control, yeah. where he effectively argues almost the opposite of what you're suggesting, I think, in the sense of uh, the relationship between accounting and innovation. And he suggests that uh, whereas uh, in the firms he studied, um, uh, innovation seemed to work best when there was the structures in place provided by accounting, not about accounting getting out of the way of, um, uh, of uh, innovation. And uh, Whereas it seems to me, particularly the Mary case, uh, it seems to me that what we've got here is at least a kind of practitioner understanding that autonomy is necess necessary for, for innovation, whereas the studies I'm thinking of from Harvard essentially argue the opposite, that uh, innovation needs to be constrained and controlled by accounting. I think it is, um, I think you're right. I mean, here it was very much driven by the clinician. At the end of the day, I suppose, it's come back comes back to Richard's point, they, you know, accounting had to be adapt, you know, had to be changed, but the driver was, 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 it wasn't controlled, it was the blank sheet of paper, I said, well, let's, let's look at how we can change what's happening, and then because accounting needed to be there, because it's part of the regulations, etc., accounting was then adapted to facilitate that change, but, it, so it wasn't driven by accounting, the foundation unit bit was, and that, I think it's an interesting opposite view between the two cases, and that's why I think it's quite interesting. But in Mary's case, it was about the blank sheet of paper, we need to do something different, let's remove accounting at the moment, blank sheet of paper, sort out what we need to do, then we recognise we have to have accounting, because that's the regulation, but let's adapt that accounting to meet, rather than be constrained by the accounting. And I think that is, you know, I think there's an interesting comparison there. There's one there. Okay. I Ian Herbert, Loughborough University. Um, thanks very much for that, John. It, I'm just slightly puzzled about the next stage of this because, um, excuse my um, cynicism sometimes, but so often I've seen this sort of uh, innovative uh, response from managers and the accountants have been supporting that and there's been empowerment. And then, of course, this ref particular case um, relies on the validity, if you like, of the internal pricing or funding structures. So one can see a situation whereby next year someone comes along and says, yes, you've made a 10% cost reduction, that's fine. Well, of course, we're going to uh, move the goalposts a little bit. We're going to pull back your income. And then, of course, everyone gets demoralized again and says, well, there's actually no point in doing this, really, because... Okay it won't endure. There's no sustainability in the yes. innovation cycle. I think the argument here, and, and I accept totally what you're saying, you know, I've been uh, in organisations where that, that's kind of happened. I, I think uh, 
in all fairness, that here there is a real drive. And actually the drive for this kind of uh, change in accountability structures has, has, has actually driven the outcomes of this organisation. And actually the, the fact that they, they perform, you know, when we get to PBR under best practice, they would argue that in many ways they're, they're, they're developing best practice. So they'll actually come out of that quite well. So the actual change processes that they're operating should put them in a very good position in terms of some of the changes that will which will definitely happen. So I feel that there, there is a real drive here and actually the things they're doing put them in a better position in terms of new forms of accountability and new PBR systems, you know, in terms of best practice. So I think I'm not as sceptical in terms of this particular organisation, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, we've had lots of researchers asking questions. Uh, uh, is there anybody else who has more practical sort of views? One there and one there. One here, sir. Are you running on? David Johnson, David Johnson, Consulting Management Accountants Limited. Um, after um, 50 or maybe even 60 years of the NHS uh, failing to introduce these systems, with many innovative clinicians developing their own systems and their own little empires and doing uh, in, in a very uncontrolled way, what do you think has been the fundamental change that's allowed these developments to take place now? Is it the funding structure or the development of professional management accounting within the NHS, which has taken many, many years to get established? I think in, in terms of, I mean, things like, um, you know, things like payment by results, etc., etc., and, and the notion of income and expenditure and that um, have, have helped the kind of processes that are taking place and, and some better understanding of the kind of costs of, of processes, etc. So I think in terms of this innovation, I think, you know, I, I feel that management accounting has definitively been important in this, but we need to be careful because in some senses it can be debilitating rather than stimulating. And I, but I think without some of the developments, it will be difficult to do some of the things that are being done here. I don't know if that's a, a reasonable response. I mean, so I think, you know, that, in, I mean, in innovation within the NHS, um, you know, there's obviously been lots of innovation within the NHS because medic, you know, lot, lots of people are here who, you know, who are living longer. But um, it's about how you drive that and how accounting can be embedded in those processes. Um, right, one last one there. But don't forget, the idea is there's plenty of time for lunch, uh, lunch and even more time in the evening buffet to talk amongst each other and ask any other questions. <clears throat> All right. Um, I'm from I'm Chiranjit Das, and I'm an analyst with uh, Tesco Malaysia. And basically, the, the question here is that whenever we, we have savings, uh, we, we have a new project and we have savings in, in, in that project, after a few years, we are expected to, for example, stand on our own. The project is expected to stand on their own. And the issue comes is that, you know, in order to, to, to keep on driving innovations, you need to have investment. And, and it comes to the question that, that you know, if you, are, if you are having the savings, they expect you to, to drive innovation yourself. And, and the investment from, from the top stops. So the question is that, um, how do you actually prevent that and, and, and you know, let them know that you still need that, that investment from, from the top? Yeah. 
<clears throat> I think the, I mean, interestingly with the enteral feeding one, in some senses when the initial block was there about create more resources, the answer was, well, you need to, you know, you need to, in some senses, create your own resources through changing the way that these things are happening. So, um, yeah, so that, that, that term was actually used. It was about invest for the... Save to invest was actually a term that was used within that enteral feeding example. And um, the argument really is that, that in some senses by developing... The, it comes back to the Ian, the response to Ian. By actually developing these kind of changes that in, in many ways Rotherham positions itself relatively well in terms of what's happening within the, if we can call it a market, you know, within what's happening. Uh, and therefore, you know, that it's in a better position. But yeah, I mean, it, this continual need to improve, and, and that's, there's no doubt about that because funding always becomes problematical from a central level, you know, in terms of what money gets put into the NHS. John? Thank you very much for getting okay. us to off, off to such a good start. Thank okay, you. thank you. Uh, thanks very much, John. Um, John's promised to answer very difficult questions later on on the panel. Uh, those questions will be put to him by Michael Bromwich. Uh, uh, it's a great pleasure also to introduce uh, the next um, uh, speaker, Professor Xin Min. Uh, he and his team have come all the way from China. Uh, Professor Shin Min is, is also president of the University of International Business and Economics. Uh, he's been there for many years as a professor of accounting uh, and for his good works he's, uh, he's also been the dean of their business school for over 12 years but uh, now president of that university. It is one of the top 10 universities in China. Uh, he's going to talk to us about corporate governance and strategic uh, uh, cost management. Um, uh, I learned uh, earlier that he's over, the, over a number of years he's served on, on the boards of uh, uh, very large organizations uh, in China. He's presently on, on the board of directors of three large uh, Chinese organizations. So he's going to talk to us about corporate governance and uh, strategic cost management. everyone. I'm excited to be here because it's my first time to be here. Uh, uh, I would like to start my speech with a brief self-introduction. Uh, I'm currently the Vice President of the University of International Business and Economics and also the accounting professor of the business school. Uh, then, uh, I'm also a, a fellow member of ACCA. As I, I'm an academic as well as an independent director of several listed companies in China for many years. I have been dealing with the issue of cost management from both a theoretical and a practical perspective for a very long time. So it's a great, great pleasure to be here to able to share with you uh, some of my thoughts. Uh, my my presentation will consist of three parts. 
the topic is uh, the topic is corporate governance and strategic cost management a view from China. Uh, the first uh, the first uh, the first part of my presentation will begin uh, will discuss the challenges Chinese firms have met with their application of strategic cost management. Uh, secondly, I will present a framework to outline the important factors that I believe have strong influence on companies' cost management practices. Thirdly, I would like to use two cases that are drawn from the strategic cost management practices by Chinese companies to support my opinion. Uh, strategic cost management, uh, I'd like to see the existing theory uh, briefly. Uh, strategic cost management has been an essential area of interest both in academic and in practical world since it was first introduced by Schenck in late 1980s. While for, uh, formulating the strategy for the accomplishment of organizational overall objectives, different cost drivers should be clearly, uh, clearly identified. Identification of key cost drivers help companies to focus on key activities that will constitute almost 90% of the total costs. Strategic cost management stresses the importance of an external focus on, on the examination of the entire value chain. This implies that organizations should be installing appropriate framework of strategic cost management to reduce its costs in key areas on which the success of organization is heavily dependent. So the, in the 1990s, uh, many Chinese corporations have sought to adopt it. However, companies have encountered several problems in this process. So today's challenges, firstly, in most firms, strategic cost management are only adopted after many important decisions, such as the strategy of the firm, the product's competitive positioning, the design of products, technology used in production, product specifications, materials, or the cost structure. These decisions have a stronger influence on product costs as changes that are led to by strategic cost management in a later stage are difficult to be accepted and implemented. Cost drivers can be identified, but the changes are difficult and expensive to be implemented. When the real changes are difficult to come through, strategic cost management becomes a fancy word used by CFOs to impress the stakeholders and sometimes a gaming exercise for different de departments to compete for resources. Secondly, I found that cost reduction is more effective and efficient when it is achieved in the company of more fundamental organizational changes rather than the change led by cost management alone, such as the change in organizational structure 
but insightful choice of strategy. The appointment of resourceful and powerful leaders. Empirical evidence suggests that cost cutters that have a myopia view and a narrow focus on cost tend to grow slowly than those companies which successfully grew both their top and bottom lines by adopting more fundamental changes. I will further illustrate this point when discuss the two cases later. Thirdly, cost management inevitably requires the support from employees. Managers, are to manage, managers who are seeking to push forward the cost reduction programs are faced with the motivation issue, how to make sure that employees' interests are aligned with the companies, how to better control employees without shifting their initiatives, how to better evaluate their performance without leading to dysfunctional behavior. In other words, cost reduction cannot be achieved simply by focusing on cost alone. From what I have witnessed, an independent director and a researcher, costs can be more efficiently and effectively managed when the attentions are directed to on to the top level and when more fundamental changes than cost reduction reduction ones are introduced to the companies. In the next part, I would like to talk about the critical determinants of costs in Chinese forms. A theoretical explanation. It is argued that the cost-related decisions are made at three diff different levels, BOD and top management level, departmental management level, and accounting level. The BOD at the top management level, this is the top and significant level of cost management. The BOD at the top management, management at a point make the most important decisions in form, which have significant bearing on product costs. It is argued that the basis of all decisions in a company is its capital structure. I think the capital uh, structure determine the corporate governance. Corporate governance uh, control or influence on the cost structure, etc. The capital structure of a company determines its corporate governance. Effective corporate governance can reduce the risk faced by the company, improve decision-making effectiveness, increase the project's operation efficiency, and improve the quality of senior management and it employees to achieve the maximization of shareholders' value. In other words, the effective corporate governance will improve product quality and reduce the cost of product. Next, I will discuss the, in detail the specific mechanisms through which a firm's corporate governance influence its cost management activities. Corporate governance has significant influence over the, both the BOD decisions and top management decisions. These decisions include the board of directors' decisions on the company strategy, 
technology level, the investment in fixed and intangible assets, office location, plant location, and the hiring as well as the remuneration of the top management. While the decisions of the top management include in, in China, including CEO, CFO, CMO, etc., include the organizational structure of the company, the execution plan of strategies, performance evaluation, and motivation scheme for employees, product design and development, marketing and sales channel. All these decisions have important bearing on the overall cost of product. The strategy of the firm set the tone of its cost management activities. The level of technology adopted in the manufacturing process determines the cost structure of the products and affects the fixed portion of the overall product cost. Second, department management levels. This is the middle level of the cost management, mainly refers to the management of manufacturing process and supply chain. This is to make sure that the whole manufacturing process can be carried on smoothly and efficiently. This includes the supervision of production line, the maintenance of machines, product quality assurance, the purchase and logistics management, and related information collection. These management activities at the department manager level have an influence on product costs as well as, as well. however, they do not have a key role in determining the cost at the first level factors do. For example, which supplier, which supplier to choose inevitably affect the product cost. The manager of the purchase department who are responsible have to be properly controlled and motivated to make the best decisions, decisions that are aligned with the interests of the firm. Three, accounting levels. This refers to the accounting, accounting calculation and analysis of product costs based on the information collected at the previous levels. The management activities at this level provides descriptive data of product costs along the supply chain, compare the target costs and actual costs, identify the discrepancies, conduct variance analysis, and point out the direction of the improvement. Uh, in, 1990, in 1990s, when I wrote ACC examinations, one important subject is management accounting. At that time, I calculate the variance analysis and uh, analyze the uh, differences between the uh, actual and the standard cost. But at that time, I, think, uh, I wondered that uh, how can accountant tell the manager how to reduce the uh, cost. So uh, ten, uh, more than 10 years later uh, have, have uh, passed, uh, I found we have to change our view. It provides an overall picture of the different com compositions of product costs 
and illustrates how efficient each, uh, each chain is. It is helpful in providing directions for future improvements, therefore affecting product costs to some extent. Apparently, this level of analysis is not as important as the first two levels. To summarize, the key point I made above is that corporate governance has a significant impact on product costs by influencing the choice and remuneration of top management and the related decisions made by BDO and top management. Cost management should not be conducted with a narrow focus on cost alone. Strategies, organizational structure, motivation plans, sales channels, leadership, and execution ability of the leaders have all to be managed in concert to ensure effective cost management. Next, I'll, I'm going to use the empirical materials I, I obtained from two manufacturing companies in China to further illustrate this point. Uh, these two, these two, uh, these two cases are uh, two famous Chinese listed companies. One is higher. The first case I would like to discuss is a home alliance manufacturing company in China, the Higher Group. It was founded in 1984. It has been transformed from originally a small collective refrigerator plant on the verge of bankruptcy to the world's number one brand of consumer appliances over the past 26 years. It is an international group which has more than 70 employees around the globe and realized a turnover of about 14 billion pound in uh, in 2010. Haya has been able to achieve effective cost management through a revolution of the system of the company's strategy, organizational structure, performance evaluation, and the incentive system and the information system. The change have to take place at the same time to make sure that these different com com components of the of this whole new system operate in concert, in concert and succeed in aligning the interests of the firm and those of the employees. First uh, strategy. Hire has a history of quick adjustments to its corporate strategies to ensure that its strategy adapts to the changing environment that hire is embedded in. Identifying uh, appropriate strategy entails an overall assessment of the firm's position in the market and its competitive advantages. It helps to set the tone of and identify the direct directions for cost management. It is the first step in the overall system of revolution. In the 21st century, with the development of information technology and global economic integration, higher reinforced its strategy as satisfying the 
personalized needs of customers in a short time. Such a strategy requires a large-scale customization rather than massive production. Under this strategy, it is believed that cost reduction is achieved through the overall increase in efficiency and a more effective motivation scheme. To meet with the challenges, challenges presented by the changing environment, higher restructured the entire business into more than 4,100 self-managed units, which are named in Chinese ZZJYT. In Chinese, it means the self-managed operational units. Each ZZJYT covers the entire value chain. It's a cost. Uh, it's a profit center. It has it has one or two members from each of the original functional departments. ZZJYT is created to ensure that each major customer has a unit that, uh, that is responsible for catering his needs. As you can see from this graph, in a traditional organization, managers give orders which are then carried, on, carried out by employees. On one side, this in increases the distance between the decision, ma decision makers and customers, while on the other side, this creates dysfunctional behavior as employees may not regard carrying out these orders as serving their best interests. It is argued that the traditional hierarchical structure is not fit with the strategy which requires satisfying personal, personalized de demands of customers in a short time period. Therefore, the new organizational structure of hire dictates that employees who deal with customers directly are empowered to make all decisions. Managers are only to support them and provide resources Customers are categorized by location and all types. Each homogeneous group of customer is managed by one specific GGJYT. Such an organizational structure is called the inverse triangle in higher. By dissolving a company with over 70,000 people into 4,100 ZZJYTs. A real market is created within the form. Each JJYT operates like an independent company. It has to identify the demand of the customer it is responsible for and make sure that its members from product and manufacturing divisions can create the corresponding products to satisfy such needs and the customized, customized products can be efficiently produced. Each ZZZYT has its own income statement against which 
his performance will be evaluated. The, sale, the sales is the income as JZJYT brought in, in vile costs are all the costs incurred within the JZJYT, including materials, production, sales, marketing, as well as the opportunity cost. For example, only sales accompanied by cash inflow are recorded as an income in the profit and loss account, while overstock is charged at, R, at one RMB per unit per day. The residual value calculated by subtracting the company's profit from net income calculated, calculated in the JJZYT's profit and loss account belongs to the JJZYT's members. They are free to share its, this residual income as part of their bonus. In reality, members of a well-performing JJZYT can have his or her salary tripled under the new scheme. In this way, employees' interests are aligned with those of organizations. This new form of, of organizational structure contributes immensely to the overall cost management, firstly by attributing all costs into different JJZYT and, and gauging costs with the income of the JJZYT. It helps to clarify which cost is more effective in production profits. As a result, the costs that are unable to produce value for customers can be avoided. In this respect, cost management in ZZGYT can be considered as a strategic cost management in a vertical form. Secondly, by dividing the entire work, work group into 4,100 JJZYTs, the new organizational structure enables the HR managers, manager to identify, to identify the unnecessary personnel. By making them redundant, labor costs and overhead costs can be saved accordingly. Lastly, and most importantly, ZZJYT decreases the dis dysfunctional behavior of employees. As JJZYT aligns the interests of employees with those of the companies, cost savings, cost savings, and cutting becomes the concern of every member of ZZJYT. The higher the cost, the lower the residual income employees are entitled to. As a result, employees will be self-motivated to be involved in the cost management activities. More importantly, such cost reduction activities will be conducted at the expense of product and service quality. Employees with ZZGYT understand that it is in their best interest and the firms as well, as, as well to improve both the top, and, top line and bottom line items at the same time. To summarize, the effective corporate governance at higher gives rise to the fun functional functioning board of direction, directors of higher group, which is able to adjust its company strategy to adapt to the changing environment. 
The top management chose the top management chosen by the BDO is then able to in, innovate its organizational structure, performance evaluation, and incentive system to ensure that its strategy can be implemented successfully. Cost reduction is rendered possible without hurting the increased interest of the customers with such new organizational structure. Top line and bottom line items are improved at the same time. Along these lines, Hire has become the largest home alliance manufacturer worldwide, worldwide with a market share of 6.1%. Uh, 6 6 Compounded annual growth, growth rate of sales over the past five years is 70, 75%. Its re recent two years growth rate of profit is 67% and 55%. Again, this, first, this further supports my argument that the cost management activities are not effective, are, not, are most effective when accompanying some more fundamental changes within a company. The uh, second, second case is another uh, listed company in China. The name is Gui. Gui Electronic Alliance, Alliances uh, located in, in Zhuhai in, in China, uh, which was established in 1991。呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，呃，
reduction and growth in sales are uh, accompanied by more fundamental changes within the organization. Such changes are supported by its effective board of directors and are enabled by its dispersed ownership structure. In Grid's case, the, the fundamental change is a revolution in sales model led by its CEO, Mr. Dong, Mr. Dong Mingzhu. Before appointed as CEO in 2001, Ms. Dong is the best saleswoman in Greece history, and she had been in charge of the sales department. Her outstanding leadership, execution ability, and original insight have fueled Greece's innovation in sales model, which further makes possible its cost management activities. Therefore, in Greece's case, the appointment of top management has a significant influence on the cost management activities. While most of the, in, most of the electronic appliances pro producers use wholesalers and supermarket as their main sales channels, Greece took a different approach by establishing franchised stores all over China. Greece's CEO Dong has dedicated to the, to the nurturing company franchise dealer uh, relationship. Greece has an off-season financial policy which entails Greece entails Greece providing free financing service and a certain percentage of profit cut out of its own pocket to, the, to its dealer. Greece also cuts a generous slice of profit from its dealers at the end of each year. Such innovative sales strategy greatly influenced the, the producer-dealer relationship and improved the loyalty of dealers. In China, it is ordinary for the wholesaler and supermarkets to have a stronger bargaining power than the producers. However, Greece's innovative sales model has greatly improved its market position and granted Greece the stronger, stronger bargaining power. Through the co construction of Greece's franchise stores, and developed of the development of the of its dealership, Gree opened more than ten thousand Gree stores around the globe. The innovative sales model has reinforced Gree's differentiated strategy. Such innovation increases the information flow rates and reducing inventory turnover. as shown in the table. Greece has achieved a higher growth profit than average and a much lower cost ratio. Compared with its competitors, the higher proportion of sales costs are more, are more than com uh, compensated by the increase in efficiency and the decrease in all yeah, all other costs. 
That's the main indicators. Conclusion. To summarize, in China, we found that the most effective cost measurement is achieved well accompanied by other fundamental changes in the company. It is argued that cost management cannot be approached with a narrow focus on cost. Corporate governance, corporate governance and effective board of directors have a significant impact on important cost-related decisions. For forms cost management measures to take effect, many other aspects of the firm's management system have to be reshaped by BOD and top management. This concludes my presentation today. Thank you. And, uh, for Q&A, I'd like to uh, ask uh, my research assistant, Mr. Dai, to help me, because he, uh, he has a good English. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, you make me feel very ashamed. I could not do that in any other language, and I doubt that I'd let you do it in Thank you for your courage. We would like to ask some questions. I've noticed the microphone seems a bit strange. I think it may be better if you try to put them a little way away from your face rather than right up, mm. but I'm not sure. So we can experiment with that. Can I ask you a first question? Sure. The first question is, were saying today could have been said in many ways by Western firms. These, the firms you talked about were global international firms doing what I think are global things. There's no special Chinese aspect. They are just big global firms. Uh, I, I think it's a, uh, it's a I don't think it's only, only the specific area problem or issues. I think uh, what, I, what I think or what I, uh, I talk about uh, have a worldwide uh, meanings uh, because I think the most important thing is the capital structure. Uh, capital structure uh, can push uh, the business and prices uh, forward, and they can uh, they can uh, appoint the the CEO and CFO, etc. They can control the corporate uh, the corporate uh, strategies. So uh, when the the corporate the when the corporation's capital structure uh, was fixed, 
the, gov uh, the corporate governance can be fixed. Then the structure of the, the most important uh, structure of the cost can be decided by that institution. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, now then, questions? Sir. Okay. Professor, can I refer you to the last slide, please? The last slide. My question is again on CCC. I don't understand that. And the in industrial average, 90.8, I presume that's in days, is it? 90.8 days, yes, 91 yes. days? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Can you please explain f in the case of Glee's financial indicator for 2008-2009, You've got minus negative 21 days and my minus 45 days. So it means to me that you're, you're actually getting people to pay you exactly. money before you actually produce. No, Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, uh, magic. Can you? Well, I, I, can, I can explain this. <laughs> uh, because uh, I, I just said, uh, Miss Stone, this CFO, Miss Stone, is a powerful woman. And in China, we, uh, <laughs> in, 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 in China, uh, people, uh, people name her, name her uh, uh, the queen of air conditioner. And she, on one side, she focused on the quality control of the, of the uh, product. On the other side, they, uh, they showed very strong uh, bargaining power for the suppliers and for the, uh, for the uh, dealers. So in, in, it's in, 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 in that combination balance sheet, balance sheet, you can see inventory, it's much, it's much uh, less than account payable and not payable. That means uh, payable. Uh, for example, I can, I, can, I, can, I can tell you the figures, uh, the, the numbers. For example, uh, if the stock or inventory for one million, maybe the notes or uh, notes payable or accounts payable, two million or three million. So uh, that is on one hand. On the other hand, agree, uh, let the dealers pay advance. So they have a lot of advances. Uh, advances. So I have a lot. So they are cash flow, their cash flow from operating activities much, much greater than operating profits. Thank you. That's how to do it. Very unique. Uh, where are we? And nobody's asked a question over there. No? So. Hi, uh, Danny Chow, Durham University. I just have a question. You haven't mentioned anything about um, the uh, cost effectiveness of Chinese labor or the very large market as, as a form of a competitive uh, advantage. How does this compare to your claims that all these advantages come out from these innovations of this inverted pyramid? Thank you.
Could you uh, uh, say that again? Repeat that again? Sorry, I, I didn't get your last point. What, what is your question? Mm. Um, many people attribute factors such as the cost-effectiveness of labor, like China has a relatively cheap and highly educated labor, as well as a very large market in which you can develop products, which means you get these uh, this, uh, economies of scale. So how does this um, form of competitive advantage compare to these innovations that you claim that these inverted pyramids and all these changes in management structure helps to actually make the companies more competitive? Is it not because that we have a very large market and cheap labor that you are competitive? Generally speaking, in China, we have a lower uh, labor cost. But with the development of the economy, in some areas, their costs, labor costs are not, uh, uh, I don't think it's very much, uh, it, uh, I don't think it's very low. Uh, for example, for this two, uh, this company, for this two uh, world, uh, world uh, well, this worldwide uh, corporations uh, is human uh, human labor human labor cost is, is not not uh, very low, not very low. So, uh, the I think the in these two cases, I think the most important thing is that the uh, scale of volume. Your good moment. Scale of. Now I can't stop them asking questions over there. Um International Ethics Standards Board member. I was curious to hear on both of the examples that you had um, individual cost units. So in Hire there were 4,000 units and in Glee you ended up um, allowing direct employee engagement with the customer. I just wondered whether you'd noticed in each of those organizations whether there was competition between the units within the company and how that impacted on performance. Uh, Ms. Dai, just it's investigated that correlation, please. So, so I did uh, the empirical interview at Hire, so probably I'm uh, a better fit to answer these questions. Um, in Hire, um, they try to minimize the competition between different units. What they do is that each unit is responsible for only one kind of product. For example, you may have different models of refrigerators. So each um, CZGYT is responsible for like two-door refrigerator, six-door refrigerator, the different models. So there wouldn't be any competition between the markets. But uh, yeah, they are trying to minimize that. It is a very good question. Thank you. Apparently, I need a special type of microphone. Uh, David Cooper from University of Alberta again. Um, I just want to uh, clarify uh, something I think I heard you say, and if so, I would like more uh, uh, detail. I think you said in uh, Hire that uh, the, each of the uh, profit centers was, uh, their net income was calculated as sales less opportunity cost. And I was just wondering whether 
um, you mean the same thing about opportunity cost as I uh, understand by opportunity cost. Whether this was something different from actual costs, uh, whether it, uh, it, it, you mentioned I think the charge for inventory and, and things like this. So I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the nature of opportunity cost in the calculation of net income. Uh, yeah. And in this case, the opportunity cost they refer to includes like the, the charge for the overstock and also includes uh, a cost for the resources allocated to that specific unit. For example, uh, before the different uh, the product managers would uh, why for the resources but now they have to pay for the resources that are allocated to them. So if they can achieve a certain um, sales volume with, let's say, 10,000 RMB, uh, they would ask for 12,000 before, but now they might only ask for 9,000 because they have to pay eventually for the resources that are allocated to them. So this kind of uh, what they mind by the opportunity cost. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it's residual income. It's very similar to the EVA in our terms. It's a simplified way to calculate EVA, I guess. Yeah. Where are we? Are you Thank you, Richard McVie from LSE. Um, I have a friend in Japan who I was visiting last year. And I said, how does it all work, all this just-in-time inventory management and that we learn about? And he said, it used to work, but it doesn't work anymore. Because it depends totally on the reliability of your suppliers. It depends totally on the whole system having this kind of way of working that you can absolutely rely on the inventory will be there on Thursday. So... Is this a phenomenon that you've been able to create in just some areas in China? Or is it something that's spreading throughout the economy that you can rely on people much more? Or is it something that won't last? Like, anecdotally, it doesn't work in Japan anymore. Uh, about the highest, uh, highest uh, So Hiroshi uh, Akano said okay. that uh, a lot of companies have given up okay. this okay. kind of very, okay. very tight just-in-time yeah. Um, well, in higher, the case that they have set up a, a logistic center which are responsible for dealing with the um, suppliers. And they also have a merchandise uh, unit which is responsible for purchase. And the only interactions with the uh, market happens within these two units. So they rely on these units to deal with their suppliers and customers, but of course the, 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 the JIT in real sense cannot be achieved. Yeah. So it's kind of the same in China, I guess. Well, just one more, I think. One more? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, 
the Bangor Coach University of Oklahoma. A quick question. Uh, when you talked about in here about changing the organizational structure, it became more market focused. What kind of changes you made regarding performance evaluation measures? How were the managers incentivized? Or how were they compensated in light of the new change in organizational structure? Um, well, in higher, just as um, Professor John has mentioned in his presentation, and there is a real market focus within the JJZIT because they operate as an individual company. So you get sales and you also have cost incurred. So their performance evaluation is based on their own profit and loss account produced based on the, you know, the, the, the sales they brought in and the cost that they have uh, incurred. So this, this is what they meant by a market focus within a company. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I think it's my job now to say thank you. First of all, I'd like to thank Marissa, if I may, because uh, she's only a gentle thank you, but she's one of our past PhD students. So we're very pleased to see her here, and we're very pleased that she answered the questions almost as well as Professor Young. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Professor Young, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.